you have your, your Bibles handy, and we will probably be jumping around to various passages, and uh, there's no way I can put all of the references uh, on the, the slides, and there are so many, there's no way we can even uh, read all of them uh, that have to make reference to the Millennial Kingdom or uh, the Kingdom of God. But Isaiah chapter number 2 is another passage that speaks to uh, the Millennial Kingdom. I had Derek uh, read Psalm 24 because it speaks to uh, the Lord's reign in our life and the Lord's reign over the universe and speaks to His glory and to His sovereign rule. But it also speaks to the necessity of us having pure hearts and holy hands and how we as citizens of God's kingdom uh, should live lives that are worthy of that calling as citizens of his kingdom. And so in Isaiah chapter number 2, we see uh, another reference, prophetic reference to the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 2 verse 1 the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways And we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Verse number four. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What a wonderful passage of scripture that talks of the millennial kingdom. Isaiah was writing by the inspiration of God of things that he could not fully understand or even realize in his time. Isaiah was writing in a time uh, when there would be judgment coming to the land in just a matter of days, uh, weeks, and years. There would be the Babylonian kingdom, Babylonian captivity. Uh, There were obviously... Uh, Wars and conflicts all around, but Isaiah, by the inspiration of God, spoke of a time where Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would rule and reign, and there would be peace among the nations. There would no longer be wars among the nations. And we read there that nation shall... Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, if you have a all-millennial or a post-millennial view, then passages such as this have to be reinterpreted or have to be applied in some way to even modern times and current events, and I just find that to be a real, a real struggle. But if you believe in a, as we do, a pre- a millennial uh, position and the coming of Christ to establish a literal 1,000 year reign on the earth, then a passage like this makes good sense. It, it fits 
uh, very well. Uh, we, just for sake of review, we've talked a little bit about these views already. The all-millennial position uh, has no literal millennial reign of Christ on the earth, allegorizes a lot of the passages uh, that speak to uh, the literal reign of Christ. The post-millennial position, uh, not as prevalent now, but the idea that the church age would usher in uh, the millennial reign, there, things would get so good that at some point there would be a millennial kingdom established by the church uh, on the earth, and then after that Christ would come, and then there would be the resurrections and the judgments. In the all-millennial position, the only reign of Christ is in the hearts of believers. There's no physical, literal thousand-year reign on the earth. And the all-millennial position will often equate Israel with the church. Again, Old Testament prophecies would look ahead at two different mountain peaks. And so there would be times where there are times in Scripture where there is reference to both the first coming and the second coming of Christ in the same context because the prophet is looking ahead and seeing the two mountain peaks and not necessarily understanding the valley between those two peaks, the church age, the mystery of the church that Paul would reference in his epistles. And then we've spent some time already looking at the preparation for the millennial kingdom. Jesus Christ returns to the earth. We see the references there. The Antichrist and his armies defeated at the Battle of Armageddon. Ezekiel 39 uh, speaks of the Battle of Armageddon and what will take place there along with these other passages in the book of Revelation. Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. Uh, we are assuming that they are slain on the battlefield at the Battle of Armageddon and then subsequently cast into the lake of fire. Nevertheless, they meet there and there at that battle. And then Satan is bound in the bottomless pit for 1,000 years. Revelation 20 is very clear about that. And again, an all-millennial or a post-millennial position struggle with Revelation 20 and the binding of Satan in the bottomless pit for 1,000 years. And so again, another uh, strong reason why we hold to a uh, premillennial view of Christ's Christ kingdom, uh, his coming, a premillennial view of Christ's coming and establishing a literal 1,000-year reign here on the earth. There is this 75-day uh, interval between Christ's return and the start of the millennial kingdom. I mentioned this just briefly uh, last week. Ezekiel 40 through 48 seemed to give us some idea uh, of the first 30 days being used in preparation of the millennial temple. And then the other 45 days, God doesn't reveal specifically uh, anything that we know of other than it's probably preparation days for uh, that uh, official beginning of uh, the millennial kingdom. Uh, I don't want to make too much of that, but it's just something uh, to make note of because Daniel 12, 11, and 12 does reference those 75 days. Now, participants in the Millennial Kingdom, we spent some time on this already. We talked about saved Jews and Gentiles. There will be people who will physically survive the tribulation. As believers, they will then enter into the Millennial Kingdom with 
they're non-glorified physical bodies. And there are references to the wise virgins in Matthew 25. There's the saved Gentiles in Matthew 24. And then Matthew 25. And there's the talk of the women grinding at the mill and one being taken and the other left. The one being taken is taken to judgment. And the other one that is left is the one that is saved that enters into the kingdom. But then there's those who have received their glorified bodies at the rapture, at the resurrection, who will now be coming back with Christ and will have a measure of rule with Christ under his leadership, of course. And there will be responsibilities. There will be kings and priests. There will be a a measure of responsibility of ruling and reigning with Christ under his leadership, under his management, and again, we don't know all that that will involve, but our life now and how we live for Christ does have eternal value. And there appears to be some measure of our rewards that we are laying up, treasure laying up in heaven. There seems to be some measure of reward that is uh, in, in line with the responsibilities that we will receive as in a sense, governors or kings and priests ruling and reigning with Christ in the millennial kingdom. And then, of course, that has those rewards, those crowns, have a lot to do with our praise and our worship of, of God, of, of Christ. Because we're going to put those crowns at his feet and those rewards uh, would, I would imagine, uh, understanding that the crowns are placed at his feet, our rewards would uh, be as well, and all that would be involved in his worship. But during the millennial kingdom, there appears to be, through these passages, and again, I don't believe that there's uh, a, a misinterpretation or a wrong interpretation, to think that Old Testament saints, apostles, and Christians, New Testament saints, and tribulation saints, all who have received their glorified bodies, who have died and have been resurrected, that they will have responsibilities, some sort of rule, some sort of reign, some sort of governorship under Christ during the millennial kingdom. They will, of course, be overseeing those with their physical bodies who have not died, who have not received a glorified body, who come into the kingdom with their their physical non-glorified body. So then... We talked last week about the perfection of the millennial kingdom. And there are so many passages, and there are, I'm sure, lots of questions that come up as a result of all of these various passages. And our minds go every which direction, trying to imagine what the millennial kingdom will be like. And we have so much of this life, because this is the only life that we currently know and understand and live, We have so much about this life that we try to figure out what is it like? What will it be like? And our imaginations, you know, go all over the place. And we come back to, of course, the scripture and we and we try to keep our imaginations in line with what the scriptures reveal. But there's hypotheticals, there's details. And I don't claim to be an expert. Uh, I wish we had time to look at each and every one of these But in general, we can see that there is, of course, the perfect reign of the perfect king, Jesus Christ. And we can go to various passages that 
speak to his reign. We just read in Isaiah 2 about the reign of Jesus Christ in that millennial kingdom. And again, this desire for a perfect king is a strong desire. It's within us. We want good, fair, righteous leadership. And we don't have it right now. Now, we as uh, leaders called to, to lead in whatever capacity, if we take the general statement of leadership as influence, then all of us are leaders in some capacity. But then there's the leader in the home, the husband. There's leaders in the church. We have bosses. We have managers. Then we get into politics. There is a need for good, God-fearing leadership all around. And there is such a lack of good leadership that it's hard for us to imagine a perfect kingdom with a perfect leader who was always fair, always just, always right, whose policies are always holy. When we see legislatures and courts and judges issuing decrees and pronouncing judgments and voting for policies that are blasphemous, that are anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Word of God, as Bible believers, we get angry. We get upset. We, we talk to our legislators, and they don't even care what we have to say. We point them to the scriptures. We talk about certain truths, and it seems like it falls on deaf ears most of the time. But one day, literally, here on this earth will be Jesus Christ himself ruling and reigning with a rod of iron, with mercy and justice and holiness and every decree, every policy, every part of his reign will be righteous. That is hard for us to comprehend. But we as believers, having received our glorified bodies, having already been through the judgment seat of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb, having come back with Christ, we will have some measure of responsibility. To whom much is given, much shall be required. Faithful in the little things, God will make us faithful over many things. There's a principle or an application for us right now, but also an eternal principle and application. That the way we live now matters for all eternity. So, righteous rule, Peace, we just read Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. No more wars. That's hard even for us to comprehend. There's wars all the time. It's in the headlines. War in Ukraine. Wars in various places around the world. There's North Korea shooting off intercontinental ballistic missiles into the South China Sea almost every day. Israel lives in a place where they are surrounded just about by terrorist organizations, and then they are surrounded, if it's not a terrorist organization that runs the countries next to them, then it's countries, in some cases, that don't believe Israel should even exist. And you understand that sometimes these peace treaties, Israel won't sign because the other party doesn't believe that Israel has the right to exist. 
Now, can you imagine shaking hands with somebody or putting your, your name, jotting your name down on a dotted line for a contract and they don't believe that you should even exist, that you should even be alive? Now, how do you make a contract? How do you establish a peace treaty with a, a group like that or a country like that? Israel is in a place where they have a very small part of land. They, they have rightful, they have rightful, they have rights to the West Bank, the Golan Heights, and the Gaza Strip. All of those belong to Israel. They have been nice enough to share those or to give those away and not administrate those or to have a joint administration with those areas. But in at least two, if not all three of those, there are terrorist organizations who once in a while just decide to lob rockets into Israel. Do we realize that? Not that many years ago, they were digging tunnels underneath the border and coming up into Israel so that they could send their terrorists into the, the land of Israel. That goes away. That's gone in the Millennial Kingdom. There is no Hezbollah. There is no Palestinian Authority. There is none of those terrorist organizations that will be trying to destroy Israel. God will be their protector and he will rule and reign with the rod of iron, and there will not be wars among the nations. There's harmony among man and animals. We read Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9 last week, and we joked around a little bit about playing with snakes, and the, uh, you know, the lion, and the tiger, and the bear. We'll be able to just be like domesticated animals. There will be no fear of them. Uh, there is a harmony among man and animals. Divine instruction... And then fruitfulness. Now, some of the questions that come up, good questions that come up as we get into these last two points about the perfection of the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 33 make reference to a greater health and to greater lifespans. My understanding is that there will be People who will physically die during the millennial kingdom who came into the millennial kingdom with a non-glorified body. Okay? My understanding has been that they would actually physically, they physically could die. They'd have a longer lifespan. They would obviously have a, a much better uh, life. But because it's not heaven, and there's not until Revelation 21 where there's no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, tears wiped away, because that is after the Millennial Kingdom. Those who enter into the Millennial Kingdom physically, I, my understanding is that they will experience death. But those of us who have a non-glorified, or excuse me, those of us who have a glorified body, who have put on incorruption, we're not, we're not afraid, we're not dying, we're not in fear of any death, we, we don't die we're ruling and reigning with Christ, but there will be, again, from my understanding, physical death of those who enter into the millennial kingdom physically, having not received a glorified body yet. Now, upon their death, they will immediately receive their glorified body. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Well, this is post-resurrection, so they, I believe, very easily, God could give them a glorified body. And then they would uh, be uh, with us there in the Millennial Kingdom. 
But as this 1,000-year reign is going, uh, year by year, people are being born. And as people are being born, there are unsaved children being raised who have to trust Christ as their Savior, repent of their sins, and put their faith and trust in Christ, who is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, from Zion, as we just read there in Isaiah 2. So there are children being born, they're being raised up in a very righteous kingdom with a holy king, but they have to submit to Christ as their Savior. They have to repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ. Their parents are born again. They came into the kingdom as born again believers. But as these parents bear children, these children have to come to Christ. That's going to come into play here as we get a little further into our study of the Millennial Kingdom. And then there is the Millennial Temple, Isaiah 40 through 46, Zechariah 14, 16. Spent a lot of time, where actually we ended uh, our time last week, with this particular thought about the centrality of worship. Tabernacle, temple, during the church age, the church, and then we see the temple again in the Millennial Kingdom. And we see the importance of worship, the centrality of worship. We see this over and over and over throughout Scripture. And worshiping according to God's way, according to God's truth. They that worship uh, God as a spirit and they that worship Him, worship Him in spirit, must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we spend some time on that even Wednesday night. So that then brings us to some specific promises regarding Israel. Now, we know this as a Christmas passage, Isaiah 9. You've been in Isaiah 2, Isaiah 9, and verse number 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Okay? Primary application... For unto us, Israel. Now, is, is not, are not all the nations of the world blessed because of the Messiah in the Abrahamic covenant? All the nations of the world will be blessed. Who is that speaking of? The Messiah. The Messiah will die for the sins of the world. Gentiles have always been a part of God's redemption plan. Melchizedek, Job, um, we can go, go, go through the Bible and other examples. Okay, Unto us, specifically, primary application, Israel. Go down to verse number 7. Isaiah 9 and verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it, with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Okay, now I realize there are aspects of that that speak even of the eternal kingdom. But we have to remember, we have to understand the increase of his government and peace. We know this is the Messiah. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. 
There is a reference there to the millennial kingdom that then carries over into the eternal kingdom. So we go to the millennial kingdom and we have to talk about specific promises regarding Israel. There is the promise of an eternal king on the throne of David. And it's a specific promise that has to be Jewish because the throne of David is a Jewish throne, a Jewish kingdom. The throne of David is not a Gentile throne. That is the Jewish throne. Okay. First of all, regeneration. There are multitudes of passages. These are just a handful. And wish we had time to turn to all of them. But Isaiah 35 and verse number 10. I don't think it's listed there. Isaiah 35 and verse number 10 is another passage besides the ones on the screen. Isaiah 35 and verse number 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion. The ransomed of the Lord. The Jews. Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62 in verse number 12. And they shall call them the holy people the redeemed of the Lord, and thou shalt be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. The redeemed of the Lord. Once again, Jews. Okay? Now, the church and Israel are not the same. There are soteriological promises that are applied to Gentiles as well as to Jews, to the church as well as to Israel. Soteriological promises, blessings, okay? But there are specific promises for Israel. The all-millennialists will, many times, take Israel and the church and put them together. And so a passage like this, yes, there can be soteriological aspects of this that apply to the church, but this is a promise specific to Israel. We have to keep that in mind because sometimes we get a little carried away with some of the verses that we hear quoted and that we put in frames on our wall, and they are specific promises to Israel that are fulfilled in the millennial kingdom or in God's eternal kingdom. So the ransomed and the redeemed of the Lord, yes, are we ransomed? Are we redeemed as Gentiles? Sure. But these are specific promises to Israel. I wish we had time to go to all these verses. We, we, we don't have time to go to Ezekiel 11, Jeremiah 31. Well, let's go to Jeremiah 31. We at least need to go to Jeremiah 31. Okay? I don't want to turn this into just an academic class and, and bore us all <laughs> out of our minds. But these, these, these passages are, are so good. And we, we read through them. We read through our Bibles. We read through these passages. And how many times... Do we read through prophetic passages and we get knee deep, we get shoulder deep, we get nose deep, and we just go on to the next chapter the next day in our Bible reading. And we don't really understand and comprehend. And it's such an enriching study to realize these passages and the promises for Israel and God's care for his own people. Now think about that. That's a specific application to Israel. 
But again, the soteriological, the salvation blessings, that God cares for us as his children. It's it's incredible to think all that God has prepared for his children. And we're so undeserving. And Israel, who rejected Christ, who by and large, in large percentages, has to this day rejected Jesus Christ, yet God still loves them with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31, and dropping down to verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Has that been fulfilled yet? No, it hasn't, but it will. That is a prophetic promise that there will come a day when Israel will recognize their Messiah and they will all come to him. That is at the end of the great tribulation and the start of the millennial kingdom. This is a promise from the Lord concerning Israel that they will be saved. There's also a regathering. Now, what happens, I wish we had time again to go to all these passages. What happens, again, with all millennialists, post-millennialists, and even as premillennialists, we, we, we sometimes get caught up in all the movement of the Jews around the world. Now, 1948, when Israel became a nation, was that a part of the providential work of God in preparing Israel for the day when they will return to him in salvation? Yes. Is the land a part of his promise? Yes. So, 1948, Israel being established in their own land once again, that is a providential act of God. Can we specifically point to a prophetic fulfillment in its entirety that speaks directly of the event in 1948 where Israel became a nation? I don't know if we can be that specific saying this prophecy in um, Deuteronomy or Ezekiel or Isaiah or Matthew is specifically speaking of the 1948 establishment of Israel as a nation. But we understand it as the preparation for the full fulfillment of when Israel will receive all of their land that God has promised them, that God promised Abraham. Again, I wish we had time to go to all these. We just read Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. What covenants have we seen in Scripture that God has established with Israel? Abrahamic, Davidic, and then we see a new covenant. And the new covenant involves the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within those who believe in Christ as their Savior, the indwelling Holy Spirit in the Jews, all whom, in Jeremiah 31, we just read, all whom 
finally return to Christ, see Christ as the Messiah, and are saved. That is the new covenant. Now, there are aspects of the new covenant that speak in various passages, if we had time to go to them all, that speak to cleansing from sin, the new heart, a new spirit of worship, and again, the spirit indwelling, and then empowering for obedience. Are there, excuse me, is there a remnant right now of, of Jews? We had one standing behind this pulpit back at the end of October, Dr. Hartman, who was burdened for the kinsman according to his flesh, his own kinsman, uh, IBJM, who we pray for, and we've had representatives here, burdened for the Jews. Uh, we have a, from what I, my understanding is, we have a Jewish community uh, that meets, uh, I don't know what exactly uh, type of synagogue, or I haven't been down to the, the specific area, but there's a Jewish community that meets uh, down, I forget, it's Union and 7th or Union and, and 8th, somewhere down there, there's, there's some sort of Jewish community that meets down there. We have Jews in our, in our own community that, that we're, we're trying to reach with the gospel. Uh, people like Dr. Hartman, IBJM, other Jewish ministries. There's a remnant, okay? And they are a promise right now of the full fulfillment of when all of Israel will get saved. And the burden right now for the Jews, Romans 1 and verse 16 we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so it's a burden on my heart that us as a church have an evangelistic mind for the Jews. And we'll talk a little bit more about that at the, the annual business meeting. Uh, but my, my point is that there is this new covenant that will be, in a sense, ratified as Jews, as the nation. Yes, there is the new covenant established with Jews right now who trust Christ as their Savior. But that new covenant that's referenced in Jeremiah 31 has a larger or a full fulfillment when Israel turns to the Messiah at the end of the Great Tribulation, or at the end of the, in the second half of the, the Tribulation, during the Great Tribulation, and into the Millennial Kingdom. Now, the land. I love talking about the land of Israel. I took a whole semester on, took a whole semester of, uh, in a history, I was a history minor. I took a whole class, a whole semester class, one credit, or no, it was a three, no, it was a, anyway, it was a two or three credit class on, on Israel and, and the land. The, the, I forget the exact title of the class. Thoroughly enjoyed the class. Dr. Hainer, uh, great, great professor, loved Dr. Hainer. I hated her tests. Um, do you still have blue books at Bob Jones? Yeah, still, or, or, or anywhere, Purdue, anywhere, blue books? Um, I'm looking over here at, at uh, Brenna, um, you know, Bob Jones graduate. You don't know? Okay. But Justin's shaking his head, okay? Um, Natalie, have you experienced the blue book test? No? Okay. Blue books, the blue book test, I hated blue book tests. It was a, a, an exam. Every test was entirely essays. No multiple choice, no true-false, no fill-in-the-blank, no matching, just entirely essays. And we had to fill this blue book up. And it was, it was awful. But Dr. Hainer was a great teacher. I learned so much in that class. And we had to 
we had a group project. Well, we were individuals in the project, but we had to choose a nation and we had to debate and form a peace treaty. It was very, very interesting. The land, the land is argued over and fought over and blood is shed over to this very day. Okay? The Muslims have no physical right to any of the land in Israel. It belongs to Israel. The Dome of the Rock, the Muslims don't have any physical right to that. Muhammad only went there in a dream. The land belongs to Israel. Now, we're almost out of time here. This is based on Genesis chapter... I need to go back here. Genesis 15, 18, and Genesis 17, 18. God's promise to Abraham of the land that God would give him. Abraham had what? The cave of Machpelah? He looked for a city whose builder and maker is God, Hebrews 11. He believed and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And he had one parcel of land that he and his wife were buried in. But God's going to give Israel all of the land that he promised them. All of it. And look at that. Do you think that they have very much of that right now? <laughs> I, don't, I don't have my, oh, there it is. There's the clicker. Okay. This, this is something that we, we could, what was it the, that, that um, President Trump uh, was it the Abraham Accords, uh, the various treaties with some of the Arab nations? And I don't think that it involved any land. But we're talking about this little portion right here. That's all they have right now. And they don't even have full control of the West Bank, the Golan Heights, the Gaza Strip. I believe the Golan Heights and the Gaza Strip are controlled by terrorist organizations. I'm not sure about the West Bank. I think the West Bank is still fought over and there's Palestinians who want settlements and and again the the, the two state the two the idea of uh, a two nation uh, state uh, it, it won't work it just it, it won't it, it can't and that's a another story for another day but look from the Nile River over here I believe this is the river Euphrates all the way up to this northern tip here Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 speak to the, these borders. This is the land that God will give Israel, and they'll have it in the millennial kingdom. And Isaiah 2 that we read towards the beginning spoke to this coming and going from Jerusalem and the nation of Israel enjoying the land. This is a promise to Israel that will be fulfilled. And then, oops, there we go. We can talk about the Davidic covenant. Isaiah chapter 2 spoke to, or excuse me, Isaiah 9, excuse me, Isaiah 9 and verse 6 spoke to the prince of peace, the throne of David. And so we don't have time to go through all the history of, of the Davidic covenant. But the curse, help me out here, I should, have, I should have looked it back up. The curse of Jeconiah, 
Um, I forget the, the, the curse on the throne that prevented a line of David from being on the throne. That curse is wiped away in Jesus Christ. So Joseph and Mary were both from the Davidic line. Okay, they both were from the Davidic line. But there was not the authority of any son of David to be on the throne. Okay, because of that, that curse, because of the sin of the kings of Judah. And there was a curse, and I can't remember, I should have looked it up. Curse of Jeconiah. Somebody, I'm sure, will, will tell me after the service. And that prevented a son of David from being on the throne ruling and reigning. But Jesus's humanity was not connected to Joseph in any way. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. His humanity was only through Mary. No sin nature, and therefore that curse couldn't apply anyway because the curse would have come through the line of Joseph and that was broken physically in the fact that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But then also, any kind of curse is wiped away in Jesus Christ, who is the perfect king, who had the right to the throne and was obviously the fulfillment of the prophecies regarding the Davidic covenant. And Christ will rule and reign on the throne of David. That's the Davidic covenant that is fulfilled and it's referenced in Jeremiah 33. If we had time to go there, we could look at that passage. And then Israel will experience prosperity like they've never seen before. Now, we're, we're just about out of time here. But there's anti-Semitism all around the world. It, it seems to be increasing. It's even made headlines because of some, can I just say, grade-A jerks, grade-A idiots that are out there spouting off some just horrible stuff. Anti-Semitism will probably remain in the world. Obviously, we know that the Antichrist will, will bring it to a pinnacle in the tribulation and persecution, a second type of holocaust in the, the great tribulation. But there's anti-Semitism that says that the wealth of the world is under the control of the Jews. And there are people who believe that the wealth of the world is pretty much under the control of the Jews. Now, God's blessing in certain ways continues to make the, the, the Jewish nation prosperous, okay? There is a material prosperity that comes from being God's people, okay? But understand, understand that one of the reasons that the Jewish nation, the Jewish people have prospered materially is because of a strong family and strong institutional unity and family structure and institutional structure. Okay, we, we can speak to the fact that Israel will never be destroyed because they are God's people. Promises that obviously we've even looked at tonight that guarantee that Israel will not be wiped off. I don't care what the Ayatollah Khomeini tries to do, Kim Jong, whatever his name is, in North Korea, the Russians, they're, they're, they're not going to be able to eradicate Israel from the, the map. Not going to happen. 
There is a prosperity that Israel will enjoy in the millennial kingdom that they have not experienced. They have enjoyed a certain level of prosperity even in the physical realm and our economy around the world. But a lot of that, yes, is the protection of God on, nation, on the nation and God's blessing in, in, a, in, in, can I say, in a lesser way, though they have rejected him and they will be grafted back in, Romans 11. But one of the things that we have to recognize is the family structure of the Jews and the institutional structure of the Jews, which has contributed to their prosperity. And as we lose our families, as we give up on marriage and we trans the kids and on and on and on it goes, high divorce rates and we could talk about all the attacks on the family. As we give up on God's order for the family, we will continue to see the fabric of our society being torn into shreds. And we will continue to see high crime. We'll continue to see poverty and all the moral applications of the breakup of the home and our institutions, our churches. Strong families make for strong churches. Strong fathers make for strong families, which make for strong churches. We need our church now more than ever. We need to be faithful. We need to rub shoulders with each other. We need to iron sharpen iron. We need to be together as often, as regularly as we can, and to be, to be ministering the word to each other and serving one another. We need to be provoking one another to love and to good works. It's part of God's order. It's part of what we will be doing in the millennial kingdom in, into eternity. So the millennial kingdom, there's a lot here. I know there's a lot of academic, and if you, I know you probably are trying to scribble down references. Maybe you were taking pictures. There's a lot more. But if you have the time to do a rich study of this, it is, it is fascinating, but it's also so enriching to our spiritual life. And it just goes again to show the love and the mercy and the faithfulness of our God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the promises of the millennial kingdom and how, Lord, you have specific promises for your people. The Jews first, and Lord, undeserving, we even benefit soteriologically through salvation, the blessings of being your children. We don't deserve that. And Lord, we thank you for the hope that is found in Christ. And Lord, the hope of the millennial kingdom. That Lord, as we return with you at the second coming, that we will have the wonderful privilege of serving you in places of leadership in ways that we can't even fully comprehend. But Lord, it reminds us of the necessity of being faithful right now in the little things, in the earthly things, knowing that there are heavenly rewards that you desire to give us that we don't even deserve, that, Lord, you will allow us by your providence and even by your power, only by your grace, that we could even uh, earn. And yet you are such a gracious God to allow us to earn rewards and then to turn around and to be able to put them at your feet and to worship you. Lord, help us now to be seeking first the kingdom of heaven. Help us, Lord, to be setting our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. And we pray, Lord, that you will guide and direct us throughout this week, continue to use our church, give us opportunities with the gospel even this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Derek is going to come, and uh, he is going to lead us in our closing hymn.